Okay, we're going to move on to chapter 2 and see the discipline and the restoration of God in Jonah's life. We've looked at the word of the Lord, and in doing so, we've seen his initiative and his knowledge and his presence. We've gone on to look at the greatness of, of God in the storm and how he used that in the life of Jonah and the sailors. We've seen the faithfulness of God and how he has not abandoned. Uh, and we, we saw the end uh, result of that in verse 17, chapter 1, when the great fish appears. And it's interesting to see that as God's faithfulness. But it is. So let's pray, and we'll take a look at chapter 2. Father, we come to you with thanksgiving that you never leave, you never forsake through your son Jesus. That you're not silent, you do speak to us, and you use your word to do that. So we ask for your wisdom to listen to you, that you be glorified. Thank you for this time, in Jesus' name, amen. It's an interesting account, chapter 2, uh, one that we've been familiar with uh, since childhood. The, the whole idea of being swallowed alive by a fish, and kept there for three days. Um, in this chapter, something comes to my mind, uh, and, and that's applicable. We see it in Jonah's life, but it's so applicable for all of us, is that you know, you'll never get over or get through the storms of life until you get over you. But you never get over you until you're taken with the Lord. And we see that taking place in Jonah's life. Again, our, um, our outline, we've seen the word of the Lord comes to Jonah in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and then verses 4 to 6, we've seen the activity of the Lord. And last week in verses 7 to 17, we saw the faithfulness of the Lord despite Jonah's unfaithfulness. And now today, we're going to move on to the Lord's discipline and restoration of Jonah. It starts in verse 17, goes all the way through chapter 2, so let's read that. Verse 17 of chapter 1, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep, uh, the great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish. Uh, phrases in this chapter that I would like to point out. It, it, it's, it's been said that if Jonah in chapter 1 is running from the Lord, in chapter 2 we see him running to the Lord in prayer. And so with this we see 
that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The word appointed is an interesting word. It means to reckon. Despite his disobedience, God does not allow Jonah to drown. Instead, he takes him to the depths. He takes him to, to, the, to the inevitable place for the one who will live in rebellion. And he takes him there for the opportunity to confess his sin and to be restored. We see in chapter 2, verse 10, this is something that is consistent with God. When God saw their deeds, the Ninevites, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. We know also uh, from uh, uh, 1 John 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is our God. The word reckon, it means to account. It's an accounting term. It's used to calculate with the purpose of arriving at truth. And so we see that the Lord is adding this fish to Jonah's disobedience for the purpose of revealing what is true. This, again, is consistent throughout Scripture. This is what the Lord does in our lives. He is faithful to do this. I'm thinking of passages like James chapter 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren. And again, we try to water down joy there. But joy is joy. If you do a word study of it, joy is joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result. And here's the reason for joy, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We know in Colossians chapter 2, Paul tells us this, that we have been made complete in Christ. The Lord is using the situations in our life to bring us to this realization of what He is doing. And again, we've looked at this before too in Romans 8.28, the, the verse that we like to quote so much when someone's going through a hard time, but do we really understand what His good is? You know, we often interpret God working His good in my life fitting in with my interpretation of what good would be for this moment. And that's really, really selling God short. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew He also predestined to become, and here's His good, conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And so we see that God is consistent with this. He is consistent throughout Scripture in bringing man to that point of the privilege of yielding to his goodness. In the New Testament, he shows us his goodness in Christ. I've told you the story of my father-in-law, Henry, and how he had escaped communism as a young man during World War II. And how he, you know, it was, it was a rough life. His father had been taken away from them when he was 12 years old. He's the oldest one in the family then. 
And they're running from communism, they're running from the Red Army, and uh, there's a lot of stories in there that could, movies could be made of, you know, including exploding trains and jumping off of docks onto boats and it, incredible stuff. Hiding from communists after World War II on a farm for two years. Finally, making it to Canada, not being able to speak the language, but taking two jobs, driving a uh, truck during the day, making broom handles at night while he's studying to get his GED and taking care of the family. And finally, when he comes to the point in life where he can, you know, but he and his wife have been looking forward to this retirement. They had plans for decades of what they were going to do for retirement when that time came. Uh, he had cancer and it took his life. Sitting next to him on his deathbed, he looked up to me and he said this to me, and I am so thankful for this, for this memory. Talking about Jesus, he said this. Nothing, and this is exactly what he said, nothing else matters. This is God's faithfulness in our life. To bring us to that point, Nothing else matters. We see Jonah freely. Now, we see God's sovereignty in this. You know, we, can't, we can't avoid it. You know, the timing and how God does it and what God is doing. But then again, like we said in the introduction to the book, at the same time we see man's free will wrapped up in God's sovereignty. And we see Jonah freely acknowledges his need for the Lord. What does he do in verse 2? He says this, I called out of my distress. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. I find encouragement in these phrases because it reminds me that I do not have to have my life all fixed and put together before I go to the Lord. If anybody ever had a messed up life when he turns to the Lord, it would be this man. He's in a horrible situation. We don't have to have it all put together before we go to the Lord. As a matter of fact, if you're waiting until you have all your problems solved, your life put together before you go to the Lord, then you never will go to the Lord. But what does the Lord say in Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? Come to me, all who are strong and free, and I will give you rest. Well, of course we know that's not it. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He goes on in his prayer and he says this, I will look again toward your holy temple. And again, I'm reminded of this this privilege that is man, that belongs to man. And looking to the Lord, I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. This is, this is of necessity if we're going to, in the context here, live by faith. To be fixed on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth. Boy, if, we ever, if we've ever seen this played out, we see it in this chapter. And the things of earth grow strangely dim. You know, to be fixed on, to look away from all else to Jesus. What an incredible privilege. I will look again 
toward your holy temple. I will look to you. Any thoughts so far? I gotta be careful because I can get into the weeds on this one. Well, go ahead. No, I just I enjoy. I, <laughs> what's that? Yeah, go ahead. No, I I just you know I always go. Okay, did he see the fish of salvation? You know, when did he pray this prayer? Was it? A yeah, that's 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 a big question. When did he pray this? Yeah. Was this like right before he got vomited onto the beach? Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing to think about what's that like? You know? <laughs> <laughs> what is that possibly like? So. Any other thoughts? I just, I just think in our lives we always come to that point where all we have left is Jesus. We can't run away anymore. We can't try to do things on our own anymore. And then that's when that breaking point comes and you just have to completely yeah, Jerry Benjamin once said that um, all we need is Jesus. The problem is we don't know that he's all we need until he's all that we have. And I think what we're seeing in the story is that the Lord is faithful to bring us to that point. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, we see that Abraham was as good as dead before the Lord used, before the Lord had him at a place that he could be blessed and made the father of a multitude. And uh, sometimes I wonder if some of the things we're going through right now as a society is, uh, I mean, God is sovereign, so this is not outside of his hand. You know, the things we see with the, you know, with the pandemic and with our elections and our social issues and it, you know, are we being brought to a point where all we have is Jesus? And, you know, we're so wrapped up in asking God to stop it. I, I don't know. I mean, we need the Lord's wisdom in praying. We, we certainly do continue to pray according to what is true. Yeah. Ready to use you. yeah, yeah, and his statement at that point was, who am I? Yeah. Before he thought he was all that. Yeah, because he was so broken. I mean, spending 40 years in the wilderness, you know, tending your father, father-in-law's sheep, you know, you, you kind of go, well, I guess I'm done, you know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm on the way out, and I've wasted my life. Yeah, can you imagine you're 80 years old, and that's what you've achieved? Yeah, yeah. and then God says, all right, now it's time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at that point is when he asked God, who are you? And then God was able to reveal himself as I am. He was ready to yeah. hear yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Well, the next phrase I see is um, in verse 7. 
at, in this place of just being brought to the depths, he makes this statement in his prayer. I remembered the Lord. I remembered the Lord. It's important to note that Jonah's remembrance invoked action. And the same is true throughout Scripture of those who remember. I'm thinking of Solomon when he prays. Turn with me to uh, 2 Chronicles, and we'll start in chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And remember, in looking at this prayer of Solomon, that he, his prayer, first of all, is based on his acknowledgement of the faithfulness of God in his father's life, in David's life. So he's remembering the Lord's faithfulness. But then look at the action that he takes with this remembrance. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, Solomon is praying here. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servant who walked before you with all their heart, our servants. Verse 15, who has kept with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So he begins the prayer with remembering the Lord's faithfulness. But then now go to down to verse 36. And here, now he's taking action on this remembrance of God's faithfulness. He says in verse 36, when they sin against you. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And when they sin against you. Not if that happens, but when they sin against you. For there is no man who does not sin and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they are taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have committed iniquity, and have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been taken captive and pray toward their land which you have given to their fathers and the city which you have chosen and toward the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven from your dwelling place their prayer and their supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So he takes action when he thinks of God's faithfulness, his proven faithfulness in the past. He takes action, and he asks this for, for the nation. And then next chapter 7, verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wickedness or their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So we look at this, we look at 
Jonah remembering the Lord and making this request, we see Solomon remembering the Lord's faithfulness and making this request. We see the Lord responding in both cases, but the same should be true for you and me. We should remember the Lord, and there should be action from that remembering. As Jesus himself says in Revelation 2, 4, and 5, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember. Remember from where you have fallen, and now take action. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of this place unless you repent. What place have they fallen from but that total dependence on Christ? Being fixed on Jesus. Remember from where you have fallen and live that way again. Then back to our text in chapter 2. The next phrase I see in verse 9, I will sacrifice to you. I will sacrifice to you. Anytime I see reference to sacrifice, I'm reminded of Romans 12 verse 1. Where Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We see here that sacrifice is costly. It's not convenient. If it's convenient, it's not a sacrifice. I'm reminded of what Charlie has told us on several occasions, that the Bible knows nothing of the concept of worship that does not require sacrifice. Does not require a cost. And what I think is interesting in the context of what we've just celebrated is in that verse we read that this sacrifice comes with thanksgiving. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. This cost is, I don't know that it's a burdensome cost. But if with the sacrifice is found with dependence upon Christ and the acknowledgement of who He is and the completeness that we are found in Him, how can we not be thankful? How can we not give thanks in everything? With the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed, and here's, here's the action, I will pay. Any thoughts with that? Yeah. There's nothing we can claim that we have that wasn't 
Yeah. Yeah, Paul, my brother and I were just talking about this, you know, with business. You know, Paul has his own business. We have our business. We were talking with some people over the weekend who have their own business. And, and, and this is something that, that Paul has really taught me in watching him. And then I've gone on to see, you know, firsthand that anybody who has a successful business and thinks that they did that is an idiot. Even the non-believer will say that it takes a lot of luck. But as believers, we understand it's not luck, it's the Lord's favor. Whether you're a believer or not, what you, what you have is the Lord's favor. So how can we not, how can we not respond like that? And it's not the government. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, any other thoughts before we go on? Okay, with this realization, we see something else is throughout. I mean, when you, when you come to see your need for the Lord, and you, you come to that point where you recognize His faithfulness according to verse 8, you can't help but sacrifice. You can't help but live sacrificially. Because of his activity in your life, as you're yielding to that, as you're responding to that, you can't help but this, because that's the result of his life in us, I believe. And then what happens is that we begin to truly worship. Look at how it's repeated. I mean, repetition equals emphasis. Look throughout this passage, throughout this chapter. You heard my voice, verse 2. Verse 3, you cast me into the deep. Your breakers, verse 4, your sight, 4 and 7, your holy temple, verse 6, you have brought up my life from the pit, verse 7, my prayer came to you and your holy temple, and then in verse 9, I will sacrifice to you. And I, I find how this is, it's interesting throughout scripture how man comes to this realization in the, in the experiences of life, the man who belongs to the Lord, who desires Him, who responds to what the Lord's doing in his life. Look at these passages, Jeremiah 10, 6 and 7, we find this phrase, There is none like you, O Lord. In John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter says. Hebrews 2, 1, Having been shown Jesus as being better, the writer goes on and says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And then in Hebrews 12, 2 again, this recognition, this realization, fixing our eyes on Jesus. True worship leaves room for no one or nothing else to draw my attention. True worship leaves no room for anyone or anything else to draw my attention away. I've told you about our um, little Westie, our dog, Winston, uh, who thinks the world was created for him. And anytime any of us are in the kitchen, he is fixated on what's happening above that counter. Yesterday I came into the house and I was in one of the back rooms and I started to call him. 
and he's always up for playing. As soon as, you know, as soon as he hears his name, he knows, okay, it's on, and he's ready, and he comes running. But he, he wouldn't come, I kept calling him. So I looked around the corner, and I saw what was going on. Arlene was doing something in the kitchen, and he was sitting at her feet, just staring up. And he wouldn't look anywhere else. He wouldn't turn to look at me. He wouldn't be distracted from the possibility that something will fall off of that counter. And he wasn't going to miss it. He did it to me last night when I was popping popcorn, or two nights ago. I'm popping popcorn, and he just sits there. And you know, he was, when he was a puppy, we used to give him popcorn all the time. And now he thinks, and then we realized it was cause, causing a skin irritation for him. So he was always scratching. So we don't give it to him anymore, but he has that memory. And he will come and he will just sit there. And it's been, I can't tell you how long it's been since I've given him popcorn, but he will stare at that countertop waiting for it and not be distracted from anything else. And one of the kernels popped and fell out of the bowl onto the floor. Bam! He was there. He was not going to miss that opportunity. He was, he was fixed there. There was nothing else that was going to distract him from that. I think what an incredible picture for me of what it means to be fixed, what it means to, to worship the Lord. And I'm reminded of how many times I'm distracted from that. Because the situation is not the way I want, it's not the way I expected it. And so, with all of this, then we come to the Lord's response in verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. God's sovereignty again is shown in the book. In chapter 1 and verse 4, we see His sovereignty. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And in chapter 1 and verse 7, each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast, and it fell on Jonah. Just happened to, right? Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And in verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish. God's sovereignty is just shown again and again and again. We're reminded that this book is not about Jonah, it's about God. Jonah just gets to live in who it's all about. And it would appear, in regards to verse 10, it would appear from reading some passages in the New Testament that the Lord actually used this experience of three days, three nights in the belly of the fish to bring Nineveh to repentance. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. The people are asking for a sign from Jesus. And Jesus replies... With this, in verse 39 of chapter 12 in Matthew, But he answered and he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monsters, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then up on the screen, Luke 11 29 and 30 say this, As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, the generation, th This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. From reading this, I'm guessing that they, when they, that they know what happened to Jonah. And knowing what happened and seeing him has brought, um, has brought amplification and certainty to the message that he preaches to them. And they repent. And that's just at what happened to Jonah. And then Jesus says that those Ninevites will really let those of us have those of us who do not respond properly to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they will witness against us because they responded to Jonah. Yet there will be those who do not respond to Jesus. Wearsby said that the sign of Jonah is seen in his experience of death, burial, resurrection on the third day, and it was the only sign Jesus gave to the nation of Israel. Do you recognize what God is clearly showing and telling you in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you recognize what God is clearly showing you in the gospel? This is what His discipline restores us to. When Arlene and I were um, a young couple, I had graduated from Bible college and I was serving as an associate pastor. And uh, we were, we had been in this church for a while. One Sunday morning after another um, message that was given on the need that Jesus died for your sins, you need to believe in Him, and you need to, you know, you need to then live like Jesus. We go home, and Arlene comes up to me in the kitchen, and it, what she had to say staggered me. I mean, it really scared me. She looked at me and she says, if all this Christian life is, is simply believing in that Jesus died and then trying to be like Him. Then, and she said this, Kelly, I don't want it. And you talk about scare a pastor, that will do it. And it was a few weeks later, we took our youth group to listen to Bob Hobson. Some of you may remember Bob. He was a torchbearer speaker. He's gone home to be with the Lord. 
she got all of his tapes and she was listening to those tapes over and over and over and over again. I came home from the office one day and she's sitting at the sewing machine listening to those tapes. I walked in. I said, hi, hon. She said, shh. She pushed stop and rewind and play again. And I thought, what is going on? A few days later, she came to me and she told me what was going on. She says, Kelly, all I've ever heard is that Jesus died, Jesus died, Jesus died. He died to take my sin away, and I believe in him. And try your best to be like him. And it's brought me to the point of frustration because I cannot be like him. I have tried. I even married a pastor. And it doesn't work. Bob Hobson used to tell us, when it doesn't work, you're in a good place. Because the moment you realize that Jesus isn't an it, you're ready for who he is. Jesus, she said, is alive. And he lives in me. I do not have to try to be like him, for he is him in me. And I can tell you that was one of the biggest blessings of my life. As my wife and I could then, in agreement, pull together. And the assurance that Jesus is alive and he lives in us. And then I just want to finish with this. One last observation. As a result of God's sovereign activity of discipline and restoration, we find Jonah is now free. Did you catch what I said? As a result of God's sovereign activity of discipline and restoration, Jonah is now free to obey the Lord and take God's message to the Ninevites. Freedom in Christ will free us from ourselves. Charlie said it last week, that's our salvation, or a couple of weeks ago, that's our salvation. Our salvation is being saved from us. Our life in Christ is not to be lived, consumed with us. Galatians 5, 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love. See, this is what freedom looks like. Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Freedom in Christ will free us from ourselves to live a life about others. Our life in Christ is not to be lived consumed with us, 
And doesn't it make sense because this is true of the character of God? For God so loved the world, he gave. Mark 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Why should our life in Christ be any different? Any thoughts? Okay. Then we'll pray. I'm going to ask Job. The Martin family is with us this morning. Job, would you lead us in prayer, please?